Oh, holy moly, you endearing fecals. Welcome to the Blind Buy Podcast. It's week number 31. This week's poem has been contributed by the actor Nick Nolte. Bruce Lee was so healthy his heart burst. I swear to you, it's the truth. I read about it on an online forum. The people who told me were so passionate, so knowledgeable. These people spoke truth. One night, he was oiled up in front of a mirror near Hoboken, admiring his nude body. Suddenly, his heart burst. Such was his health. The exact mechanics of his death were covered up by Jewish people. That was Bruce Lee was so healthy his heart burst by Hollywood actor Nick Nolte. Thank you very much, Nick. I'm so glad that you listened to the podcast and that you're so enamoured by it. And thank you for that letter that you sent me. So I'm just going to go straight into the... I won't say theme, but something in this podcast that I want to speak about. I want to talk about a dog saint. A dog saint called... Saint Gwynefort. I was... uh, Having an old squint through some early medieval art, you know, some religious art, um, and fucking Pinterest or something, I don't know. And I came across this fucking mad painting from about the 14th century. And I thought it was fake, thought it was fucking fake. This is what interested me. So it was this kind of fairly standard 2D fucking early medieval religious panel and it was kind of almost Byzantine style because it had that lovely gold leaf in the background but it was like the body of a man his hand one hand up and the other hand was holding like a bishop's crozier with a cross but the man had the head of a dog so I was like, what the fuck? I, I can't be coming across a early medieval painting where a man has a dog's head, where a religious saintly figure has a dog's head, and then that immediately immediately go on, on a fucking an information hole to try and find out what's going on. So it turns out it's a saint called Saint Guinefort, or Guinefort, Guinefort. And it's, it's, Gwynefort is, is a dog saint. He's a saint who's a dog with a man's body. But he's, he's an illegal saint. And he's been worshipped since the 13th century in France. But all over the place as well. Mainly in France, in Lyon. And the Catholic Church made this saint illegal because it's, he's, Peasants were worshipping him. A, fo- a folk saint is a type of a saint whereby the regular people worship the saint, but the church does not recognise this figure as a saint. You see a lot of it in South America. 
see a lot of it in communities that once had pagan religions but were colonized fairly quickly by the Catholic Church. Um, you'll see in, in the Mexicans they have the Day of the Dead and they worship some mad-looking dead versions of Holy Mary. But anyway, Guinefort is a dog saint, an outlawed Catholic dog saint. And the story of Guinefort is pretty class. So Guinefort was a 13th century French greyhound, okay? And he lived in a castle near Lyon and he belonged to a knight, okay? This is the story. And it's quite similar to the story of the Fitzgerald Gibbon, who I told you, or the Fitzgerald monkey that I told you about a few podcasts back. The uh, the Fitzgerald family in Ireland have a monkey in their crest. And this story of Guinefort is actually quite similar to this Fitzgerald monkey story. Possible Norman French connection, actually. But anyway, I'm digressing. Guinefort the dog in 13th century France, who lived in a castle. His owner, who was a knight, went out hunting, alright? And he left his infant son in the care of the greyhound Guinefort. When he came back from hunting, he went into the nursery to look for the child, and everything was fucking wrecked. The cot was overturned, there was plates knocked down. The place had been looked like the place had been ransacked, right? And he couldn't find the child. But then Guinefort, the greyhound, comes up to greet his master, the knight, and his face is covered in blood absolutely covered in blood and he's wagging his tail and the face is covered in blood so the knight just becomes overpowered with with anger he's like you fucking cunt of a dog you're after killing my infant son you fucking prick of a dog and he pulls out his sword and immediately kills his dog dead kills Guinefort for eating his child and then after Guinefort's dead soon after he hears the cries of the child the cries of the infant and he looks over into a pile of uh, rags that are on the ground and the child is in there absolutely fine crying but alongside the child is a snake and the snake is bloodied and dead and the fucking the, the knight starts bawling crying with guilt it's like oh man I'm after I'm after killing poor old Guinefort. I'm after fucking killing him. Because I thought he killed the child, but what he actually did is he saved this child from a, a vicious snake that was trying to kill him. He bit him in half. He did his job. He protected this child's life. And the reason he was wagging his tail with blood all over him is he was just trying to say, Look at me, master, I did a good job. So the knight was heartbroken, right? But also kind of embarrassed that he just murdered his pet greyhound you know because knights were supposed to be upstanding members of society they were supposed to be chivalrous you know he was he was a big strong man out hunting it's not very good for your image in the community if the local knight is going around stabbing greyhounds is it so he got the body of Guinefort and he threw it into a well 
But what the knight didn't realise is that one of the servants had seen what had happened. And the servants went and told all the people in the village about, about Guinefort, the hero dog, who saved the child from a snake, but was killed by accident. So the local people started going to the to the well, you know, and started covering it up with stones and planting little 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 trees around it. And then, of course, rumors started flying around the place that, you know, miracles were being performed at this this dog's grave. So people started to travel to this this dog's grave for healing purposes or to have miracles performed you know because this is the 13th 14th fucking century like do you know what are you going to do and the reason that people would travel is for two reasons the first reason was the nobility of his deed the nobility of you know rescue you know killing that snake but also the actions of the knight the knight who who acted upon passion and anger and didn't act upon good judgment, didn't, you know, sit back and take all the facts, or consider his morality. That's why people went to this shrine. People who felt that they were going to be led astray by the devil to do immoral acts would visit the dog's grave so that the dog could lead them in the path of good judgment. Also, it became a ma- the dog's grave, Guinefort's grave, became a massive shrine for visiting place for mothers with newborn babies because in 13th century France infant mortality would have been fairly fucking high and these are regular peasant people they're not educated okay they don't have the wisdom of the fucking bible because in the 13th century the bible was read in latin if you didn't fucking didn't understand latin which you didn't if you weren't educated you didn't have any of the wisdom of the bible you just did what you were told you had folk mythology. So children would go there, or, or mothers would go there with their sick children or healthy children and carry them to the, uh, to the fucking, to the, the grave. And one thing I find interesting too, a few podcasts back I spoke about the, the changelings in Irish mythology. Okay, and I spoke about it with, in specifically with Puchine Makers. And just to recap quickly, a changeling in Irish folklore is when a fucking child might die, an infant might die or an infant might become sick. The belief in ancient Ireland was that it's the infant, the sick infant in the cot is not your actual child, that fairies had come in the night time and replaced your healthy child with a sick fairy child and your healthy child is off somewhere in the woods with the fairies. And this, I described it as part of the Jungian collective unconscious that the, the changeling is an archetype, you know. And we found in France in the 13th century, people would visit Guinefort's grave as a way to stop changelings, to frighten off the changelings. So there was this old woman who lived in a castle nearby Guinefort's grave and women would pay her money and the old woman would perform this bizarre ritual with the child over Guinefort's grave where the child had to be jumped into the air seven times between the mother and, and the, the old woman and passed between two trunks of trees 
in this elaborate ritual and this would stave away the fairies from turning that child into a changeling which I find quite interesting you know because this is France and we had the same shit going on at the same time in Ireland so Guinefort became very much worshipped as a saint by the peasant people of France and this pissed off the Catholic Church because you can't have you, how do you maintain control over the population when everyone's worshipping a dog you know and you had this wonderful folk art depictions of this dog saint the man's body and a dog's head so the church were like they'd made it fully illegal they were like you're not going worshipping a f- there's no there's not dog saints in the catholic church you pricks is what the church said so Guinefort was worshipped as a folk saint well up into the 1930s like hundreds and hundreds of years and I say bring back Guinefort you know if Christ can walk on fucking water you can worship a dog I could have an extremely hot take and say that Guinefort could be transcending transcending through memes of dogs through popular dog memes on the internet let's let's turn Guinefort into a dog meme but uh yeah, folk, folk saints are fucking interesting, you know. These saints that come about through medieval popular culture but not are not venerated by the church or not recognised. There's another class folk saint that I came across. And this saint goes back to the 14th century. Various places across Europe. It's Saint Wilgefortis. And what makes Wilgefortis so unique to me is Wilgefortis is transgender essentially it's without gender and the images you will find of Wilgefortis and there's statues and there's paintings it's it's basically a a woman's body right like a like a like a maiden in in lovely clothes with full breasts and female hips and kind of a feminine-ish face, but a full beard. So imagine imagine these people throughout the medieval times getting down and kneeling in front of a, a crucifix where Christ has a pair of tits and is wearing a dress. And that's what St. Wilgefortis is. So I was like, how the fuck does that happen? How does that happen in the 14th century? Some people argue, right, that the origins of, of, of Wilgefortis is you, you like you have to remember in medieval times the church was split in two right you had the the western kind of roman church but then you had the eastern church controlled from constantinople right these are the byzantines that i spoke about and in eastern christianity they had a different style of dress the countries were fucking hotter you know so people would have worn Kind of what, like, you see people in Saudi Arabia wearing today. Like, long dress, like, female dress, like, clothes. You see men wearing dresses. So, some people argue that an image of Christ around the 14th, 13th century started knocking around Europe. But this image was created in the Eastern uh, Church. 
and it was an image of Christ wearing what looked like a dress to Western European eyes, okay? And how religious images kind of get passed around at the time. There's no photocopiers, there's no newspapers, there's nothing. So if someone saw an image of Christ, if they were handy at art, they might, you know, make a little quick copy of it on a piece of wood or whatever. So this image of Eastern Church Christ wearing Eastern style of dress somehow got translated by a peasant into Christ wearing a woman's dress. And it's almost it's almost a, like a like a simulacrum, like a hyper real simulacrum, because it became a, a copies of copies of copies over about a hundred years. It ended up with Christ with a female body and a full beard and like a half man, half woman face. And this was Saint Wilgefortis, heavily outlawed by the church, by the way, because whatever about worshiping a dog saint, you are not worshiping Christ with a pair of tits. That's not happening. You don't get to run a fucking oppressive regime regime such as the Catholic Church with people worshipping Christ with a set of tits. Not happening. So, what I find so kind of fascinating and enamoring about St. Wilgefortis is they became a symbol of female kind of liberation. Like in Spain... Wilgefortis was called Liberada, the Liberator. And how this came about is when this image of a female bearded Christ was being passed around, you know, people started to kind of stitch narratives together and create a story as to why this figure existed. Because again, uneducated peasants, you know, and this, the narrative that came about around Wilgefortis is that Wilgefortis was a, a a teenage, like a noble teenage princess from Galicia or Portugal. And she'd been promised in marriage by her dad to a, a Muslim king. Now this is 14th century. Like females were property it's as simple as that if, if a father had daughters that's it it's sell them sell these daughters sell the most beautiful daughters to the richest men sell them as property and get loads of money in return that's how women were treated in, in medieval times so this girl Wilgefortis um, was promised to a Muslim king and the Muslim king was like an old man, you know. So she was a teenager going, I don't want to fucking marry some old man, but I don't have a choice. This is being forced upon me. So one night, she prayed and prayed and prayed to uh, fucking, to God that he would make her utterly repulsive, right? And one day she woke up with a big, massive man's beard. And then the Muslim king saw this previously gorgeous female daughter with this giant beard and he was like fuck that to her dad he was like fuck you you're after making me travel all the way to Portugal to see your daughter and she's got a big long beard I'm not marrying her so then the father was so pissed off that she had done this that he crucified her 
And that's the story that the people of Europe, the plain people of Europe, had developed around these androgynous Christ images that were knocking about. That's who they see Wilgefortis as. And Wilgefortis became hugely popular in medieval times with women who were in highly abusive marriages or women who'd been forced into marriage or women who'd been deeply, deeply oppressed and mistreated and they flocked to St. Wilgefortis, the liberator as a symbol of, of freedom from the massive patriarchal oppression that they were experiencing. So that is pretty fucking class. Let's bring back Wilgefortis, please. St. Wilgefortis, outlawed by the church. But I think between, with those two folk saints, what's kind of uh, interesting me about them and kind of drawn me towards what I think the kind of broader theme of the podcast is, is that while both those stories, we say, you know, Guinefort, the loyal dog, who was slain by his master, and Wilgefortis, the bearded lady, both of those tales are, they're not necessarily unique in human mythology, right? Even a few podcasts back, I spoke about, in the 12th century, Geraldus, in his book Topographica Hibernica, which was Geraldus's book about 12th century, 12th century Ireland, which he was using to give to the Normans to conquer Ireland. He wrote about the King of Limerick and the King of Limerick's girlfriend with the big long beard. And Guinefort's story, like that is very, very common throughout the world, all across cultures. And you find this in a field called comparative mythology which is something that furiously interests me which is a field of kind of literary interrogation where you look at myths in, in cultures all across the world who've had no contact and you find commonalities, similar stories in all these cultures and the the Guinefort story is like you find that story in ancient India you find it in China, all over the gaff, it's a common human story about the killing the act the killing of a of a a loyal animal through harsh judgment and for that story to serve as an allegory for humans to chill the fuck out you know don't judge the situation um so quickly step back from it before you act and you find that, yeah, that story is common across a lot of mythologies around the world, you know. Because animals are great, you know. Anim- animals, this, any story that involves hurt or pain to an animal, I think always gets an empathic reaction out of us because they're so helpless and sound and loyal, probably. The Indian story is actually about a, a, a mongoose. Um, I don't know, is it the killing of a mongoose? It's called the Brahmin, the Brahmin and the mongoose. It's probably about a loyal a loyal Brahmin, because I know the Indians are big into their cows. The Hindus. Um But it takes me onto the field of comparative mythology and 
to my old friend Carl Young. And Young's thing, as you know, is big theory, the collective unconscious, that we as humans have a shared well of consciousness that we all on this earth have access to. And it could just be seen as a fancy word for instinct, but because we humans have the complexity of thought to communicate ideas through words and metaphor that we have a collective unconscious we have our our brains have these common stories and common characters throughout whatever your culture is whether you even had contact with another culture that these commonalities exist and what it, what it takes me on to is kind of the coolest one of all and it's one called the the hero's journey right and this is something that you know intimately if you've never heard of it you know this intimately it just hasn't been pointed out to you so comparative mythologies like was hugely hugely influenced by the work of Carl Jung his collective unconscious and the archetypes right and there was one comparative mythologist called Joseph Campbell and Joseph Campbell was he was a young freak he was also a James Joyce freak he wrote books about James Joyce's work to try and figure out what the fuck Joyce was actually on about so with comparative mythology it's it's and also structural anthropology it's a fella called Levi Strauss um looking at the various myths, stories, fairy tales, folk tales of cultures all around the world and attempting to find a common template for them all. And this common template, in line with Jung's view, would kind of reveal the collective unconscious of humanity, the little cogs of our unconscious mind that are our instinct, in the way that... You know, a, a bird a bird knows how to get out of its nest and fly and do bird things and lay eggs or whatever the fuck birds do. That humans have this too. But because we're complex beings with complex brains, our instinct is happens through meaning and metaphor and symbols and words and stories. So Joseph Campbell came across the came upon this thing that he called the hero's journey. This template that every kind of good story in the world follows and this template is used pretty much to a fucking T deliberately in Hollywood movies fucking Netflix whatever you want if there's a story and it's good chances are it follows this hero's journey the bones of the hero's journey is that like like first off it's it's the story of Christ it's the story of Buddha the story of Moses it's the story of Harry Potter the story of the Lion King the story of Star Wars the story of the Lord of the Rings once I kind of tell you what this hero's journey is it's going to ruin a lot of films for you because it can make films quite boring because when a movie sticks to this template too perfectly when you can spot it, it's just, it's like seeing the fucking hand of Kermit the Frog's arse. You know, it ruins it. 
So there's 17... The, the biggest hero's journey has 17 stages, but the smallest would have three stages. It starts with a hero, okay? The hero can be anything. It can be a character, or it can be an idea. Good documentaries that you see, if you see a decent documentary, that too follows the hero's journey, except the hero is an idea or concept. So the hero's journey starts when our hero is called to adventure of some description. Okay, it starts off in the normal world, okay? For fucking Frodo, it's... I don't know, that place where the hobbits live that looked like a golf course. I'm not really up on my Lord of the Rings. But anyway, so we start off with our hero in their world of normality. Then something happens that kind of disturbs that normality and our hero is given a kind of a challenge or an adventure, right? Then our hero resists this challenge. They're like, fuck that, I don't want to do it, that's not for me. At this point, they cross the threshold. They go from their known comfortable world into an uncomfortable world. When this happens, they accept the challenge, right? Then a helper usually comes along, a supernatural helper of some description, and helps them along and mentors them in this journey. At about the halfway point, they, they, they enter the abyss, right? Something really fucking mad happens where you, as the person listening to this story or in the cinema, goes, Oh, fuck no, the hero's gonna die. Oh, shit. And you think it's like it's all over. But then the hero comes out of this abyss and something about them is transformed. They're, I don't know, given a fancy sword or they learn something about themselves. And this transformation then takes the the hero that was a weak novice who was learning in the first half, in the second half, after they kind of come out of the abyss and the near death, they've gained a strength and the hero has a new strength and they've transformed. Then, three quarters of the way through, they reach uh, atonement. Okay? They kind of, they look back and atone for maybe what mistakes they made at the start and they really grow. And then finally, three near the end, they return to the world where they were at the start but with this new kind of gift either this knowledge about themselves or this magical fucking sword and they sort out whatever the problem was that turned that world upside down at the start and it ends as it started that's every fucking Hollywood film you've ever seen that's the story of Christ that's the story of Buddha that's Moses that's that is the hero's journey that is the monomyth as it's known that is Joseph Campbell's life's work it's his attempt at finding the template and the commonality in every single famous mythological story or folktale across communities across the earth regardless of whether they had any contact that's what he found and, you know, some people see it as, you know, evidence of the human collective unconsciousness. 
my own hot take on it is that the, it, actually no I'll get to my hot take after it I'll show you right off the top of my head I'll show you how we can u- use the hero's journey right on anything to create something that sounds like a, a riveting story okay so we'll use fucking my mug of tea alright I'm drink- I'll take a sip of my tea ah fuck my things after falling off the front of the microphone two seconds so I've got a mug of tea in front of me and it's uh filthy dirty dirty filthy mug of tea well what I do when I'm drinking tea actually you're going to hate this but I have a particularly large mug of tea and I like to allow um, the tannin from the tea to build up inside in it because it gives me a more flavourful cup of tea I don't wash the tea I don't wash the I'll go maybe 25 cups of tea before I wash it because I think the brown tannin substance inside offers extra flavour to my tea but okay let's do Let's do the hero's journey on my mug. Um, so we start off in a kitchen, okay? And there's a lot of mugs. And they're all filthy, dirty, dirty mugs on a kitchen countertop. The sun is shining in and illuminating kind of how how filthy and dirty they are. And then a caretaker walks in and he notices how filthy the mugs are. So he grabs one, the dirtiest mug. And he's like, oh man, I need to clean this fucking mug. So he grabs the mug and the mug is like screaming and roaring going what are you doing put me down put me back put me back to my friends put me back with my dirty mug friends but the caretaker's like no man you're getting washed look at the stadia you're filthy I don't want to be fucking washed I don't want to be washed leave me alone I want to I want to stay filthy forever with all the the other mug lads caretaker's like fuck that so the caretaker goes over and there's this tiny little mug the camera's kind of just zooming into this small little mug and we see that the caretaker, he's got a this, this big dishwasher. And he opens up the dishwasher. The door, the door of the dishwasher opening up are like fucking jaws. Huge big jaws. And this tiny mug is going in there on his own. And the door is closed. And it's dark. And you start to hear these loud, grumbling fucking noises. And boiling hot water is splashing all over the place. And, and it's shaking and rumbling. It's fucking terrifying. It's like a storm at sea of this boiling hot water and mad noises and steam. And the mug is inside screaming, screaming because it's been scalded. And all the dirt is stripping off the mug. And you're watching it going, oh no, fuck, this is too much. This is too much. The mug is going to fucking, that mug is going to smash. It's going to die. Oh no, it's all over. But then there's silence. And there's steam. And there's calm. And the noise has stopped. And the door is slowly opened on the dishwasher. And plumes of wonderful blue steam emerge and are illuminated by the light of the kitchen that comes in. And our mug emerges from it. Squeaky fucking clean. And the mug's looking at himself going, Fuck, I feel fucking great, man. I'm, 
I'm clean. Oh, look at this. I can see the wonderful polish on my ceramics. I can see the, the design of the duck on the front of me. Fucking hell. That dishwasher wasn't so bad at all. I mean, it was tough, but Christ. I feel great. I feel fucking clean. So then, this clean mug is returned to all... The, like, the caretaker gets the clean mug and he puts it back on the counter with all the filthy mugs. Now, the filthy mugs are looking at the clean mugs going... What the fuck happened to you? You look different. You're not the same. What happened to you? Get away. Get away. But the clean mug is like, Hold on a minute, lads. I've been to the dishwasher. I've been there. It's cleaned me. I feel better. I'm a better mug. I'm a better mug for being washed. I swear it. Okay? Don't be afraid. I've been to the dishwasher. It was terrifying. It was it was it was horrible. You know, it was hot. But I come out of it and I'm a better mug. Look at me. Look how clean I am. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because one day you're going to go into the dishwasher and you'll be cleaned. And it's going to be grand. Now that there, I literally off the top of my head had the hero's journey template in my head and applied it to a fucking mug. And that's the bones of a Hollywood film. A riveting, engaging Hollywood film about a mug. And I guarantee you, when that mug went into the dishwasher, you were invested in its safety. Because that's the hero's journey. That's the, that's the story of fucking Christ. It's Christ going to the tomb, going to fucking heaven or whatever the fuck he did and coming back and saying, I've got a message. It's the whole shebang. And that's a common theme throughout fucking human mythology and when we hear it when we hear a story that hits those marks you know it takes our brains into that place of contemplation where we're I don't know we're kind of wondering about what, what is the nature of existence that's what that story does so some say that it's you know it is evidence of the collective human unconscious I think what it is my hot take on the hero's journey and why it it's evident in the mythology of all cultures regardless of whether they had contact with each other if you think of it it's it's our sleep process okay that's what it is you're going to go to bed tonight um, you're going to climb into your bed and it's going to be night time you turn off the lights and then you drift into sleep and while you're asleep you're going to have all these, you know, these mad, crazy dreams that you don't understand. And you're going to crash the threshold into the world of dreams. And where your brain will be figuring out whatever happened that day or whatever happened in your childhood. Your brain goes after this strange, sometimes beautiful, sometimes terrifying land of intangible dream. But you'll always wake up. And when you do wake up... You wake up in the exact same bed you went to sleep in, except the sun is shining in the window, and it's a bit clearer and a bit more positive. It's morning. It's the cycle of the sun and the moon. You know, the hero's journey is also, it's daytime. The sun rises, you know. You've got dawn. Dawn doesn't know what it is. Dawn is kind of like, ah, I don't know, am I, am I, I don't know what I am. Am I, am I nighttime? Am I daytime? You could argue that dawn is resistance. Dawn is resisting both nighttime and daytime. 
But then it's like, nah, fuck that. I think I'll go for a bit of daytime. So then we've got the full sun. And then the sun fucks off and has its battle with dusk where it's like, oh, what am I? I don't know. Am I, am I nighttime? What am I? Am I daytime? But then it goes into full fucking dusk and the moon comes out. And then we're back at day again. That's also the hero's journey. That's why I think maybe that exists in the human mind because it's echoed in both how we go to sleep and wake up and how the sun appears to have this this battle with the fucking moon or this battle with the nighttime, but it's always going to be okay. The hero's journey is circular, just like going to sleep and waking up and just like the sun and the moon and all that carry on, you know? I don't know. I hardly ever get dreams. Um, I, I'm convinced it's because I spend so much time kind of writing during the day that whatever shit is inside my unconscious that needs to get out, it gets out in the daytime when I'm writing. And as a result, then my mind is empty at night or I just don't remember dreams. I Like, I have two recurring dreams. Like, not mad recurring, maybe twice a year. Of the obviously of the leave insert dream, which is fucking awful. I'll get that maybe once every two years. I hate that. Um, mine isn't sitting the leave insert. It's the dream where you have to repeat it. Or I, the, the, oh yeah, yuck. Yeah, because I I fuck it. I failed my leave insert, you know, and it's that feeling of ah oh, man. Irish exam is coming up now in two months and I haven't studied Irish since junior sort, you know. But get that recurring dream and then the other recurring dream I get is walking out on stage and I've forgotten to put my bag on. That's the other one. That's a shit one. I had that last week. I had a dream that I did a live podcast and went out without my bag and then suddenly I woke up on a bed in an airport and the actor Aidan Gillen was shaking my hand. Having a clue what that's about. So, do you know what we'll do? Let's go back to something I haven't done in a while on the podcast. Your drunk Limerick aunt, where I get the most recent tweets of Donald Trump and read them out as your drunk Limerick aunt. So let's see what old Donny's been up to on his Twitter. Okay. You're, it's it's uh, it's two in the morning. You've had a tough day. Your aunt comes in. She's been at a new Italian restaurant and they've been serving Negronis. She's never drank Negronis before. She's had a few too many because they went down so easily. And she sits beside you on the couch. You're trying to watch The Wire. You're re-watching The Wire. Your aunt sits down. She says... Can you believe that with all of the ma- all of the made up unsourced stories I get from the fake news media, together with the ten million Russian witch hunt, there is no collusion. I now have my best poll numbers in a year. Much of the media may be corrupt, but the people truly get it. Trade negotiators are continuing with China. They've been making hundreds of billions of dollars a year from the US. For many years to chunt. Our great first lady is doing really well. We believe in hospital and two or three deaths. 
Thank you for so much love and support. The so-called leaks coming out of the White House are a massive over-exaggeration put out by the fake news media in order to make us look as bad as possible. With that being said, leakers and traitors and cowards, and we'll find out who they are, swear to God, swear in the holy picture. So that was your, uh, your drunk, drunk limerick aunt. Reading Don and Tom's tweets. Hold on, I'm all over the place here, lads. Okay, it's time for our ocarina pause. Because we're 44 minutes into the podcast. Um, the ocarina pause is where the app that this is uploaded on Acast, in exchange for their wonderful, delicious, uh, easy service, certain listeners must endure a digital advert that is placed in the middle of this podcast now I don't want your fucking podcast hug disturbed all of a sudden by some loud advert for bullshit last week I heard that some people received an advert for uh, some some anti-choice um, ads about the 8th amendment fuck that can't believe the cunts are buying ad space on my podcast the pricks um, I emailed ACAST to see if there's anything that could be done about it. So anyway, this is the... I'm going to play a, a, a lovely Spanish clay whistle called an ocarina. Now, there is a whistle that I'm trying to source, actually. It's it's an Aztec death whistle. Um, it's It looks like an ocarina. It's a clay whistle, but it, when you blow it, it makes the sound of a, a, a screaming man. But I don't have that. I've got a, my Spanish ocarina clay whistle from the region of Andalusia. And I'm going to play it, right, as a warning that there may be an advert. And if you're lucky, you will only hear the ocarina. But if the gods are not with you, you will hear an advert for some bullshit. Actually, regarding the ocarina recently, I've seen a lot of a lot of people have been sending me videos of their dogs... Their dogs have been really, really been enjoying the ocarina pause. It makes them uh, quite sprightly. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Sounds like a startled turkey, doesn't it? That was the Ocarina pause, you delicious cunts. This podcast is supported by you, the listener, okay? It is supported by, it's financially supported by you, the listener, through the Patreon page. Um, I'm still out there looking for some sponsors. A few of them have been biting. Um, I, I almost had a sponsorship from a very large magazine. And then they actually listened to the podcast and found out how much I say the word cunt. And I also think they thought that I really liked the IRA, which I don't. I just like Irish history. But anyway, they pulled sponsorship. Fuck them. That's what I say. Um, There might be... Do you know, I'm not too pushed on sponsors anymore. I'm just not too pushed on it. Some sponsors are like... We'll sponsor you, but can you do this thing that you do a little bit differently? Fuck them. Like, no. Like, that that's my problem with that model. It's like, the podcast is the way it is because I'm doing it the way that I want to do it. I'm not answering to anybody. Don't want a fucking advertiser going in going, I don't know, a pair company. We really want to sell pairs on your podcast, but can you stop talking about the IRA? And it's like, no, I can't. Like, it's part of history. It's not specifically talking about the IRA. It's just calling ye cunts all the time. And just a bunch of other stuff. But, like, that's the whole joy of a podcast. I want some advertiser telling me what to do. So fuck them. Um, but, better than advertisers... The wonderful democracy that is Patreon. And this podcast is supported by you, the listener. So, what I say every week is that, like, I make about five hours of podcast a month. Um, it takes a lot longer than an hour to make it, so it's, it's a fair amount of time goes into it. And I love doing it. absolutely adore doing it. But if you enjoy listening to it, and you're like... I enjoyed that five hours of podcast so much that uh, if I met Blind Boy in a bar or in a cafe, I would buy him a pint or a cup of coffee. Then go to patreon.com forward slash the Blind Boy podcast and you can donate me the equivalent of a cup of coffee or a pint once a month in exchange for my five hours of podcast. And yeah, do if you feel like doing that please do I, I that makes a massive impact in my life it's class if you can't afford it and you don't or you simply don't want to that's also fine you can listen to this podcast for free because i listen to a bunch of shit for free too so i think that's a pretty a fair system that it appeals to people's sense of kindness it appeals to how much some people can afford and how much some people can't afford just seems fairly straightforward and, and a decent system um, so please become a part of that if you want and if you don't no one's going to shit in your letterbox because um, yeah nice one also uh, recommend the podcast to a friend share it on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat whatever the fuck subscribe to the podcast on your app 
or leave a rating or a review. These are all nice things you can do to help support this podcast that I absolutely adore fucking doing and that I wouldn't change for the world. Yart. Okay, now I'm going to answer some of your delicious questions. I'm going to fill my tummy up with gorgeous, sumptuous questions and answer them into your ears. Lewis asks, you probably get tired of hearing it, but I'd like to ask your opinion on Father Ted. I grew up watching it in England with my grandparents and brothers, and it's still my favourite comedy ever. As an Irishman, what are your thoughts on it? Any hot takes behind it? Yort. I don't really have any hot takes about Father Ted. It's fucking brilliant. It's perfection. It, it's, it's, it is true kind of sitcom perfection. What I love is that until Father Ted, the greatest sitcom was Faulty Towers. Okay, and that just had one season, Faulty Towers, which is Faulty Towers is sitcom perfection. And it's like, how do you how do you do better than Faulty Towers? And I think personally, Father Ted did, and they did this by they, they answered. They went at Faulty Towers with a postmodern view. Father Ted is basically Faulty Towers with the satirical freedom and storytelling of The Simpsons, okay? With Faulty Towers, each week you had, you know, incredibly strong characters and, you know, a good sense of conflict and a setup and a good idea. And. You, you know the character of Basil Fawlty so well that you're like, I have an idea of what's going to happen, but I can't wait to see how it's going to happen. But it always stayed either in the foyer or in the restaurant, and it happened around the hotel. What Father Ted did is it was able to use cutaways, essentially. You know, it, it, Father Ted left the studio to have recurring jokes outside of it, which is, I think they borrowed from The, the Simpsons. Father Ted as well, on top of Faulty Towers, as like I said, I'm not knocking it, it's fucking perfection, but Faulty Towers was not, I don't think it was a biting satire. Father Ted has got the writing perfection of Faulty Towers, but also, it was released in, I think, 1994, at the height of the Catholic Church scandal. Like, Father Ted, in the context of when it's released, was a a dangerous satirical comedy that really attacked the Catholic Church in in a way that would not be possible in Ireland beforehand. It would not because the Catholic Church had some very heavy censorship over our media. So not only is it being hilarious, it was humanising the people of the Church in a way that was absurd and surreal, but not necessarily nasty. So, it was politicised in a way that Faulty Towers wasn't. And, it's perfection. I always call it the fucking, the Beatles, do you know? Um, I was commissioned about six years ago, back when television kind of meant something. It was the end of when TV meant something. And we were given a pilot on Channel 4, 
which in 2011 was a fucking huge deal. That was a massive, massive deal. That was... TV was still being watched. It meant something. And I was only a young fella. And I'd never written anything other than three-minute sketches. And all of a sudden, it's like, here you go. Half-hour fucking pilot on Channel 4. And Channel 4 at that point, Channel 4 to me had been Father Ted, Brass Eye. The pressure was fucking ridiculous for me to write this thing. And the first thing I did, because that's a frightening thing, that's very frightening. It's like, write a half hour for fucking Channel 4 there. Frightening thing. So what I did is I got went, went to the first episode of Father Ted. And I watched it with a fucking razor blade. I broke down every second of dialogue, every camera angle, every plot point, you know, and I broke it down almost like a reverse kind of like a Joseph Campbell thing to try and, I don't know, get the Father Ted formula, not to copy it, but to kind of, this thing was so perfect that I wanted to understand exactly how it worked. So that I could not kind of break the rules but have a decent understanding of them. Like I mentioned the hero's journey earlier, you know. Like I just wrote a book full of short stories and at no point when I'm in a state of flow, when I'm writing my short stories, am I thinking back to the hero's journey? Am I looking at the hero's journey going, oh did it hit that point, did it hit that? No. What I do is I I intimately understand the hero's journey because it unconsciously informs my process. In the way that's what I was trying to do with Father Ted. I wanted to break it down into its smallest components so that I understood that perfection. So that when I was in a state of flow, I had that learning behind my process. Do you get me? And one of the pitfalls, to the point that fucking, yeah, the director of my Channel 4 pilot was Declan Lowney, who directed the first two series of Father Ted. Declan's a fucking legend, an absolute gentleman. And because I was young and wasn't particularly confident and I needed the mentor of someone like Declan Lowney who'd worked with the likes of Graham Linehan and Arthur Matthews who wrote Father Ted. Me having Declan Lowney on board gave me... It filled in the gaps of confidence for someone who'd just written four minutes on fucking RTE. And... I don't really like the pilot that I wrote, to be honest. It's, you know, when I look back at it, I see a lot of, a huge amount of failures and mistakes. But from those failures and mistakes and reflecting on them, come successes at a later date. There's nothing better than making a bollocks or something, you know. There's nothing better than trying and taking a risk and getting something wrong. That's where learning happens. Learning doesn't happen from success. It happens from failures, you know. But even though it was, in my opinion, um, a failure in terms of it didn't accurately reflect my voice, um, the channel loved it and it was ready to like get a fucking series. We were going to have a rubber banded series on Channel 4. But what happened was the commissioner of Channel 4 left and a new person came in. And any time a new person comes into a TV channel, a new commissioner... The first thing they do is they scrap the things that were on the table from the old commissioner because a new commissioner is trying to 
stamp their old identity. Alan Partridge even did an episode about it. It's so common. And that's happened to me twice. When a new com- commissioner comes in, that's it, you're fucked. So that's what happened, and it was unlucky. But, yeah, Father Ted is... is it's the Beatles. When I got that Channel 4 pilot, people were like... Um, what were they saying? Will it be, The media were like, will it be better than Father Ted? Or you're being compared to Father Ted because Father Ted was on Channel 4 and you're Irish and now you have a comedy thing on Channel 4. And what I used to say was, Father Ted is the Beatles. You don't... Father Ted invented a rule book, so you don't compete with Father Ted. You can only try and do something different or respond to it, but there's no such thing as better than Father Ted. It's too perfect. And... But maybe there is, because I was ready to say that about Faulty Towers. But yeah, no, Father Ted isn't better than Faulty Towers. It just twisted the formula in its own way and gave it its own identity and respectfully carried on from it, you know? Was that a self-indulgent rant? Did I make that question about me? I think I'm allowed to. We we were the first Irish comedy commissioned... Comedies... First... Yeah, the first Irish comedy commissioned after Father Ted. Um, that ended in 97. We were commissioned in 2011. I could be wrong there. There might have been something in between. But... I think it's fair enough. I'm allowed to bring my experience of writing for Channel 4 into my Father Ted experience, considering I did um, try and work out its template to write my Channel 4 thingy. Apologies if that was self-indulgent, making it about me. Paul asks, Hey Blind Boy, just wondering if you ever fancy doing an audiobook version of your books. Yes, I do. Um... As you know, if you go back to the start of this podcast, the first few episodes were me reading out um, short stories from my book, The Gospel According to Blind Boy, which is in shops now, you pricks. But, yeah, I was going to do an audiobook then, but it's actually loads of work. Um, Well, no, I made it loads of work because I don't want to do just an audiobook. I want to read my stories, but also create... Um, musical soundtracks to the stories to make it something more than just an audiobook, like a piece of audio theatre. There is going to be an audiobook, okay? Right now what I'm doing, I'm writing my second book. So I'm fucking sickeningly busy. I've, I'm writing 5,000 words a week, okay? And I'm a tiny bit behind. So tomorrow, or, or today, sorry, i got to write 2,000 words today get that out of the way and then immediately begin 5,000 for next Monday um, I aim for about seven 800 a day out of that seven 800 you maybe keep three uh, so I'm very busy right now but I do have I believe it's the month of August is scheduled in on my schedule to record the audiobook for book one and the audiobook for book two. Not sure how they're good. They, they'll be released as either separately or as one. But yes, there is going to be an audiobook. But it's it's mad. It is a lot of work. It's it's a huge amount of work. You wouldn't think it. But reading something out, um, and 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 then composing the music behind it and getting it to the level where I want it. 
because I don't want to just fart out a fucking audiobook where it's just me talking my stories, you know. I mean, I could also give it to someone else to read, but fuck that, I want to do something new. Um, What I really wanted to do for book two, but I'm not sure I'm going to have the time, is write the fucking book. Obviously, that's going to get done. I wanted to paint the image on the front cover. So I write it, paint the image on the front cover, and then also release the audiobook with specially curated music to it. Because why not? If fucking Roddy Doyle was able to paint and make music, I'm sure he would be doing that to enhance his art. And I'm a big believer in metamodernism, which is what people say is our, our, I'm gonna do. I might do a separate podcast on that alone. Actually, metamodernism is what people say is the current state of culture. We had modernism at the start of the 20th century. Then the middle of the 20th century, we had postmodernism. Now we're in metamodernism, where boundaries are well and truly blurred, where we can be both ironic and sincere at the same time, and where the boundaries of what an artist is are not clearly defined. It is okay for an artist to be painting, writing, making music, dancing, directing videos, whatever you want. Because I grew up in a multimedia world. I grew up as a a creative person with the fucking internet. So as a result of that, I was able to develop far more skills than somebody who would have come before me. But yeah, there will be an audiobook. Yart. Simeon says, I'd love if you did an episode where you take the podcast to a gallery or discuss art with an artist your approach to making art accessible and open to all is so important. Thank you, Simeon. Yeah, I'd fucking love to do that. Um, That is something that's on the cards. Ultimately, what I want to do, and it could be a couple of years down the line, but when virtual reality technology becomes more ubiquitous, right? At the moment, we're in this stage where like, not everybody owns an Oculus Rift. Only a few kind of people who are very passionate about it. Um, I, can, I see the PlayStation are rolling out virtual reality headsets and so are Xbox. But when, in maybe two years, when virtual reality headsets are something that most people will have, I do want to do full 3D immersive virtual reality podcasts where you put on a headset and I take you through galleries around the world um, that sounds nuts but I think that would be really really class imagine throwing on a headset and we go to the Louvre or we go to the British Museum or we go to the fucking the National Portrait Gallery or even the fucking Irish Natural History Museum and I just have like a GoPro or something and it's full 3D immersive and you walk around with me and you can turn your head left and right or all around you and see what I'm talking about I think that would be unbelievable and we just wait for technology to kind of catch up with that but it's, I, I can see it being possible in the meantime I might just do if I get a chance to do a straightforward audio podcasty thing um, one of the big galleries in Ireland contacted me recently asking me if I would do some art tours for them but I just didn't have the schedule for it even though I would love to do it but I just I was fucking far too busy to be going up to Dublin doing that for a few weeks. 
we're 66 minutes in. I think I'll, I'll let you fabulous bastards go this week. Um, I didn't speak about mental health this week. Um, I don't know why. I just, I, I was enamoured by folk saints and information. My head was in an information place. Cause it got, probably because I'm doing so much writing. But I am continually every day looking after my mental health. Um, if I'm not doing it actively through my cognitive processes, I'm doing it through exercise. Um, again, this is my plea to you to uh, consider exercises as part of your mental health journey. Not in a facetious way, not in, oh, you're feeling sad, go for a run. Fuck that. I understand what it's like to not want to get out of the house. I understand what it's like to, for your self-esteem to be so bad that going to a gym feels terrifying. But if you are considering a bit of exercise, whether it be going to the gym, lifting weights, or running, I urge you, give it a go. Give it a go. Get a couch to 5K app or just start lifting. I reckon that's 50% of my daily mental health management. Um, If I'm falling behind a bit, we'll say, on my writing... I get up at 7 in the fucking morning and run 10 kilometres to kind of I don't want to say flagellate myself because that's a form of punishment and running for me is very enjoyable but it's it's very difficult for stress or negative thoughts to dictate or control my day when I've used that much physical energy when I've in, gotten that many endorphins flying around my brain. So that is my, that's where I'm at at the moment, mental health wise. Also, of course, the mindfulness. I jog by Yorty's couch and I take in the wind and the breeze and I notice my pace and I notice the, the sheer fucking beauty of nature and all that stuff is for you. Take that on board. If you're walking this morning, if you're doing anything, have a lash at mindfulness today. The very simple practice of whatever it is, just choose it. Choose your moment. Whether it's eating your lunch, washing the dishes, rubbing your dog, going for a walk in a park. Do it mindfully. By which I mean, n- notice, make your mind a mental sketchbook. If you're walking on the ground, notice the type of ground that's under your feet. Notice the smells in the airs. Categorise everything. Take it all on board. Tell yourself, oh, I can smell the roses. I can smell, you know, I, I, the dandelions have a, have a crack of piss off them. Whatever. This will take you out of the, the stressful cacophony that is the inside of our heads on a daily basis. And that's what creates stress and disease. Disease, unease. And ultimately, unhappiness. Um, I say that of course to people that are relatively mentally healthy if you're in the throes of anxiety or depression my words there I understand that that seems quite patronising you're in a different place and that's fine and other people are in a different place um, that's all I can say go in peace you pricks have a great week I wish you all the best see you next week
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.